when we look at the finish line, when deals stall out, it's nothing that was done wrong at the end. It's something that was done incomplete at the beginning, meaning in discovery, right? When they start saying, well, we need to put this off, and you go, well, wow, I thought we were all set here. We've been told, probe for pain, right? Gotta look for pain points. And anytime we hear a pain point, again, we write it down and we start to salivate because we think now we're getting the deal. There's a filter that we have to apply to any pain point that we uncover. Is this an inconvenience or is it a problem? Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Lee Sauls. Lee's a sales management strategist and he's the author of a new book titled Sell Different, all new sales differentiation strategies to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. And in our conversation, Lee shares what it means to actually sell different and how selling different will help sellers to win more deals at the prices they want. Especially those deals at the prices you want when the differences between your products and those of your competitors are so slight, right? And this is a situation that we find ourselves in more and more frequently. We also dig into the reasons why how you sell is equally as important as what you sell, if perhaps not more so. And we get into why top salespeople know that putting their buyer's needs before their own is a key to their success, especially putting the needs of your key decision influencers before your own, all of which are so critical to the buying experience. So we're going to get into all of that and much, much more. But before we get to Lee, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. We'd really appreciate it. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Lee, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Andy. It's been a while since we talked. How are things? Yeah, things are wonderful. Now, last time we talked, you had just injured yourself weightlifting. Ah, uh, yes. So tell us about that, because you're you're a power lifter, right? Yes. A few years ago, New Year's Eve day, I was getting ready for a powerlifting tournament that was a few months out. That was a great workout. And then all of a sudden, I completely ruptured my triceps. Whoa. Now, triceps, not your biceps. Yeah, because you hear about the bicep tearing quite a bit. It was like a giant rubber band just snapped. And, and I had never done it before, but when I did it, I knew exactly what I did, if that makes any sense. Sure. <laughs> had to be something back there. So this is New Year's Eve day. And you you know you can't really see doctors that day. I went to uh, an urgent care, but most people are off New Year's Eve day. Can't get an MRI on the first of the year. And on <laughs> oh, the second, God. I had to get on a plane and do a three-day workshop uh, on sales differentiation. And while I was there, my entire arm from my shoulder to my fingertips turned purple. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I had a connection to a doctor from one of my son's injuries. As a matter of fact, when I was sitting in the waiting room, uh, I sent him a note. And I said, I think you just got a new patient. So while I was there, I, I, I sent him a note and I said, hey, uh, my arm just turned purple. Is that normal? He's like, <laughs> is that bad? Yeah, from what you described, that sounds about right. 
So I was told I was done with powerlifting forever um, because they said if you do it once, you're susceptible to it happening right. again. And even though you have a spotter, it's like an engineering failure. Yeah. Right. If that snaps, doesn't matter who's behind you, it's coming down. But I worked my, my way back. And a few months ago, I competed in the uh, Minnesota State Bench Press Championships and won. So okay. I have. No, uh, right. <laughs> no, this is by this is by age group, right? It is. This was in the Masters too, um, but I also won the Open for my weight. So you're you're over forty. Let's just say that. <laughs> let's say fifty-two to be precise. Fifty-two to be. Pre Why didn't you? Thank you. I didn't want to give away anything. And you could be against people in their twenties and thirties, I imagine. And I love beating them. <laughs> yeah, you love beating them. All right. So, how much did you bench press? In that one, what did I do in that one? That was uh, 3.24. <laughs> so, have you ever seen competitive bench press? It's not like what you see in the gym. Okay. So they give you a lift off. You have to hold the bar steady and wait for a start command. Bring it down to your chest. Wait for a press command. Right. Put it back up. Wait for a rack command. And... If your butt leaves the pad, if your feet don't remain flat on the floor, even if you do the lift, it doesn't count. Jeez. 324, that's like, uh, that's like two of me. <laughs> <laughs> In the gym, I did 345 last week. Most I ever did before I got hurt was 370. Wow. Okay. So, for everybody listening, <laughs> if you, just show us, because I mean, you didn't start this... If I remember correctly, you started this relatively later in life, right? Um, no, I've been in the fitness world since I'm like 17, 18 years old. But in terms of the powerlifting, though. Powerlifting started in 2000. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we've all, I mean, I've, yeah, I work out religiously and run and bike and so on. But, yeah, um, yeah not, not powerlifting like that. Wow. That, but that's my personality. Yeah, well, you set your mind to anything. You can do it. It's, but I want to go in, I want to lift as much as I can. You know, I'm there and I'm competing, even though I like beating the younger guys and stuff. It, it's me against me when I'm doing this. Yeah. That, that's what I enjoy so much. Wow. Okay. Very impressive. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on. We'll talk about your new book, your new book titled yeah. Sell Different. Um, so tell us what you mean by different. Okay. Well, why don't we start with the, the difference between my prior book, right? Sales oh, sure. differentiation. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna get to that, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. We can do that now. You got sales differentiation, and you got sell difference. So, what's the the difference? And then you say, boy, is that a fair question to ask a guest, right? To put them on the spot, and is it really fair to ask them what's different compared to their their prior book? And I and I ask people about that, and they say, no, it's probably not a nice thing to do. And I go, absolutely, it is a fair question. Just like for those that are in sales. Whether the, the prospect asks you the question or not, that's the big question that's on their mind. They want to know what's different. And if you can't articulate it, if you can't demonstrate it, you know what wins the day, Andy? Price. Nothing left. Or doing so nothing. So what's different about this book compared to my other one? Let me answer that question. All right. I think you'd agree sales has never been tougher than it is today. Competition's fierce. When you look at the differences and features and functions from one product to another – 
they're, they're subtle, they're narrow. But at the same time, and maybe you've seen this, I haven't, executives aren't going to their salespeople, hey, I know it's tough out there. We're going to cut your quota in half. And by the way, sell the deal at 20 points less margin. We're cool with that. Mm-hmm. But no, we're doing that. We still expect salespeople to win at high rates while protecting margins, or as I just trademarked, win more deals at the prices you want. But how do you do that when the differences in what you're selling are so slight? Well, you have to sell different, which means looking at every touch point in the buyer-seller relationship and identifying ways to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. And that's exactly what this book does. It gets into everything from how you generate leads, how you uh, handle referrals, how do you handle discovery meetings. Everybody wants to talk about how you improve conversion rates. You won't hear me use that word closing. How you improve conversion rates, well, do a better job in discovery. Uh, <laughs> how you sell virtually. You know, when I wrote the book proposal, there wasn't a chapter on virtual selling, and then this little thing happened. What was that called again? Oh, yeah, the pandemic. <laughs> now there's a chapter on virtual selling. Um, I get into how you deal with the ultimate deal killer. doesn't matter what you're selling. It's there. It's, it's fear of change and how to navigate that issue and so much more. So it doesn't matter what you sell or to whom you sell. Each one of the 15 chapters lays out a strategy, explains why it's important to do it step by step and how to put it into practice. Now, I'll give you a peek into the kitchen, Andy, a couple things that I did. One is that I sent this manuscript, very beginning, first round of editing, to a bunch of corporate clients, folks that would be the the audience for this book. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm not looking for you to evaluate grammar or spelling or any of that. Here's what I want to know. What could you not implement based on what I've written? Because one of my goals for this, and I'm sure you've seen this with plenty of the sales books that are out there, is to make it so that the reader could read the chapter, read the strategy, and take action on it without having to call me and say, hey, Lee, we want to hire you to do this. Most sales books that I've seen out there, you read it, it's like, boy, this is really good, but man, I got to hire someone to help me put it into place. With this book, and I think you'd agree because I know you had a chance to read it, mm-hmm. I laid it out so that every single one of those strategies you could put into practice without having to contact me. All right. So let me let me take a step back because you, you, you said something that, that I see all the time and I, and I, I understand why people say it, but I'm, I'm not I'm just not sure it's true, okay. I, which is that sales is harder than ever before. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of competition, but at a certain point, it's not the, the quantity of competition. It's, it boils down to the sort of the quality of the competition that you're selling true. against. True. And yeah, a lot of it's pretty bad in terms of how they sell, not necessarily the products, right? The differentiation mm-hmm. is small. Yeah. But there's this sort of this. But there's environmental considerations, right? I mean, now you've got in-person selling, you've got virtual selling. There's a lot more complexity. It's much more difficult to reach people because they're not necessarily in their office. So that's what I mean when I say that it's more challenging than it has been. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm, I'm not sold on that. I think sales is hard. I think it's always been Absolutely. hard. I think it's hard today. I don't think it's any harder. In fact, I could give you know, counter examples of ways that perhaps it's actually easier, but, mm-hmm. but it's just hard. You know, really? And I think that the only reason I bring up is I, 
<laughs> I see this on LinkedIn, other places where you know, sellers are taking this idea that you know, if it's if there's a piece of advice that wasn't written by uh, you know within the last year, it's not valid. And it's like, come on, people, it's it's let's get serious. I mean, no, humans humans haven't evolved that quickly. The way they process information and and make decisions has changed. You know, been the same for the last thirty thousand years, basically. Mm-hmm. And I just I I only push back just because I think it doesn't serve. <laughs> In fact, I think I think the the people selling now just need to know that it's, it's just hard, right? It's always been hard, right. and you can't make any excuses by saying it's harder than it's ever been because it's like no, nah, it's just hard. It's hard work. You got to know that when you get into it, and it's why you know read books like yours to help you navigate the difficulty of it, which has been around forever. Um, anyway, this I just wanted to push back on that a little bit, but. But I, I agree. The underlying premise absolutely is is how you sell can be a key differentiator. And and I'm wondering when you're writing the book whether you were really had in mind is yeah I think there's been this trend, somewhat driven by some of the tools that exist is in the wrong hands. Some of these tools, heavy-handed use by managers is look they want to make all their sellers exactly the same, and. I don't think that's a recipe for success. I think that how you sell is very individual. I think there's a blend. I think there, there's there's a hybrid. I, I don't believe that you just say, okay, salespeople, you know what you're doing. Go go ahead and sell. Oh, I agree 100%. Right? I think yeah. there's, you know, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. The name of my consulting firm is Sales Architects. It wasn't my idea. It was actually inspired many years ago. I had a salesperson that worked for me. And what she said was, you know, what I really like about your style is you put a framework in place that helps me to be successful, but you don't tell me what color the drapes need to be. Now, yeah, she was- missed the point when she when she described as an architect. That's not exactly what an architect does. But the point was point that was, yeah. you, you, you need to have the opportunity for salespeople to inject their style, their personality. Yep. But you still need a framework. You know, one of, one of my favorite questions to ask executives, if all your salespeople came to you and said, I just had a great discovery meeting, a fantastic discovery meeting, what would you know for sure, for certain, took place in that meeting? And do you know what the most common answer is? No. Go ahead. Nothing, because we've never defined how the handling of discovery well, sure. how does that make sense? If you've got 10 salespeople and they're selling the same stuff to the same market, why wouldn't you, what I, I refer to as prescribe the handling of discovery? If you hire 10 people to manufacture your widget, you wouldn't say, well, each one of you go ahead and put it together whatever way you want. You would never do that. Why? Because you repeat mistakes. It's inefficient. It's ineffective. Why do we do that in sales? Well, I think that... I. I think very few people do these days. I, I think it used to be much more common. I think, though, the, the pendulum has swung too far the other direction, which is the frameworks, instead of being a framework, they become a prescription. And I, see, I haven't seen that. I, I'm still oh, I seeing see it all the time. Um, companies that are leaving everything out to chance. I'm sure there are. But I'm saying in the main, and certainly what I see is, is and it's particularly true in, in tech companies, is, is yeah, we're, we're going to, describe this sort of to the nth degree, this process, and leaves and use our metrics to enforce compliance with it and leaves little room for the sellers to inject their own style into it. 
or they feel like they don't have the freedom to inject their own style into it. Well, that comes back to one of the oldest statements, I'm sure you've heard it a million times, is that sales is a numbers game, and they're trying to play it that way. And I partially subscribe to that being a numbers game, but here's the problem. If you exclusively buy into that, if sales is a numbers game, you know what's happening to the people that you're working with? You're treating them like a number, and no one wants to be treated like a number. Just make a lot of calls. I mean, it's funny. I I created a... um, because on LinkedIn, when you when you write a book, there isn't a place really for a book. You create it as a job. So I created this new job last night, uh, author of Sell Different mm-hmm. with Harper Collins. Andy, all day long, I'm getting emails from people on LinkedIn congratulating me on my new job. <laughs> like no one's even reading what it says. Well, it's because like, they've got alerts set up, <laughs> just like a set a trigger. So they're I know, they're, but you, read. Oh. It, <laughs> That doesn't. That's not. But when you when you do something like that, you're not endearing yourself to the other person. You you look at that and go, this person just hit a button. Oh yeah. Well, I posted about that this weekend on on LinkedIn as well about experiences I've had with people filling my LinkedIn inbox with uh, spammy messages with no making no attempt to personalize it. And yeah, it's. <laughs> It's I mean, amazing how many people thought. Here, just, my phone just lit up. Congrats on the new role. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah, I got one this morning saying it was a job solicitation. Yeah. You know, we think, uh, yeah, we really like the work you're doing as, in my current title on LinkedIn for current positions, host to Sales Enablement Podcast. Right. We think you're really doing a great job as host. <laughs> <laughs> we think, based on your experience at Sales Enablement Podcast with Andy Paul, you'd be a great fit for the job openings we have. Yeah, thank you. Just a, a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, your book I liked was, you know, it's sort of a, I call it a field guide of tactics and strategies for this differentiation, how, how you sell. Um, and... You use the term decision influencers, which I like. Uh, so tell us how you came up with that and explain what you mean by that. I introduced that in, in sales differentiation. A decision influencer is anyone and everyone who influences the decision to buy what you're selling. So it's north on the org chart, all the way down through, could be even the users if they if they have some influence. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that I was just having this conversation with somebody um, last week is how do you know where you're supposed to call? Because you know, a lot of sales training talking about, yeah, you got to sell to the top. Uh, in other cases, depending on the size and the strategic nature of the deal and so on, maybe that doesn't make sense. So how do, you, how do you decide or how do you define who the right decision influencers are? So the first thing you got to do is take an introspective step back. And look at the issues that you address, the opportunities that you create for an organization. Say, based on where we impact, who in the organization is going to be most interested in that conversation? Mm -hmm. So you take an introspective look at your company, but if you conduct an analysis of decision influencers, and I do this, you take a sheet of paper, you draw a line down the middle for each decision influencer. What's keeping them up at night? What are their goals, challenges, priorities that you can address? So there's mm-hmm. a filter on it. And then the right side of the page is how can you help them with that? What's the synergy there? 
And so once you have that clarity regarding the decision influencers, and you look at that relative to the analysis of what you're selling, now you can figure out who's going to be most receptive to this conversation. And that's one of the things that salespeople, I find, don't do enough of. And management, executive teams don't do enough of. Just make a lot of calls, call into these companies, try this person, that person. Well, let's, let's take a step back. Who's going to be most receptive to the mm-hmm. story here? And in some cases, it's a middle manager. In some cases, it's the CEO and, and everything in between. So there, there isn't a set answer to that, but rather the two-step analysis, first of what you're selling and of the decision influencers in the organization. And you say in the book, you write in the book that you don't like the, the term um, ideal client profile. So no. tell us about that. Yep. So you hear that all the time. And to me, when I hear ideal client, it's, and salespeople hear this too, if all the stars were to align, this is the type of an account that we should go after. I describe it as a target client profile. All day long, this is the business you should pursue. This is who's going to see value in what we're selling. You know, so often we we look at the price issue, and one of the reasons that price issue comes up is we're calling on the wrong people. You know, in in the uh, introduction of the book, I tell the story of when I was a, a teenager in Marlboro, New Jersey, and we had a, a friend who had this business idea, and it was to start a transportation company for dry cleaning. Pick up your dirty clothes and return them back clean. Right. And he hired me as, as his driver. And very quickly, I, I learned some important business lessons at a very young age. Because the question in my mind was, would people be willing to pay more for this service? Because he didn't own the store. There was no discount on the cleaning. It was a layer of cost on top. And the answer was some people. So if you worked locally or you had someone at home who could handle your dry cleaning, you thought we were nuts. Why, mm-hmm. why would I want to pay for that? But Marlboro, New Jersey is about a two-hour commute to Manhattan. And, you know, this is 1980s. Mm-hmm. People didn't dress like you and I are now. They were in suits. So you, you dressed up for work, right? What, no T-shirt and shorts? What are you talking about? No T-shirt and shorts. <laughs> and for them... They, some of them thought, this is amazing. I wish I had thought of this idea. Remember, this is 1980s. This is not present day. That that service was not like it is uh, today. And that really spoke to the point of knowing your audience. Who is going to see meaningful value in what you're selling? And that Mm -hmm. word meaningful is so important because we preach go sell the value, but we need that word meaningful in there. Because that speaks to understanding the individual right. that you're communicating with. Yeah, I mean, yes, relevant value, mean, meaningful value, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. So one area I wanted to get into in the book you talk a lot, I mean, I love talking about is discovering. And I love you write that discovery is an expression that we as sellers use. That <laughs> It's not uh, one that, uh, that buyers use. So, so talk about that. Yeah, and I see this fairly frequently. I mean, as a matter of fact, I saw it just today, where salespeople will say, "Yeah, let's go ahead and set up a discovery meeting." Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, what? thank you. Why don't you say, "Why don't we set up a sales call?" Because everybody right. looks forward to having a sales call. <laughs> 
that's an internal term. That's that's for us. It's a consultation. Or for example, with me, um, I'll say, let's set up a, a Zoom conversation. Very casual and formal. No one wants to be in a formal sales environment. Well, and also you, you give the, the buyer the impression they're going to be, as they've experienced numerous times, sort of interrogated uh, as opposed to having a conversation about that. Yeah. Absolutely. And discovery, if I say to you I'm having a discovery meeting, who do you think the meeting is for? Oh, it's for them, the seller, absolutely. Correct, for the salesperson, not for the individual. Well, but, but we have this whole problem, you know, the way we identify all the stages in our sales process are all right. sales-centric. It's one yes. of my, you know, real pet peeves and has been forever. Is, and it's, unfortunately, it's it's still being used. If you Google sales process, you'll, you know, see thousands, thousands of examples of absolutely these linear stage-based processes that are all, you know, neatly identified in terminology that have no relevance to the buyer. Absolutely. And, and you'll notice in the first chapter, I talk about the buying experience, not the mm. sales experience, the buying experience. Very important. I'm right along with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you bring it up in the book. You talk about Challenger, talks about that. Um, yeah, I think Challenger, what is it, 53% or 58% or something of the purchase decision is based on the buying experience mm-hmm. with the seller. Right. So, yeah, it becomes very, very, very critical. Um other one, well, we sort of talked about this before, but it's you sort of you jumped ahead. Is is um, talking about the important questions salespeople need to ask themselves? And I like this: is how how do you? The question is how do I expect the decision influencers to feel about the challenges I address prior to meeting with me? And you you repeat this pattern in the book, which is and so important for sellers is you have to think about what you're doing, right? I mean, you it have is. to ask yourself questions. You have to prepare yourself mentally and intellectually for the job you're about to do, the call you're about to have. Yeah, what you're referring to is part of the discovery experience. You know, there's an expression, I think you, used the, you said 30,000 years, and this one certainly falls in that category, that everybody knows that people buy based on emotion and justify it with logic, right? How many books have been written with that in it? And we for, right, but we forget about that when we get to discovery. And, and the point that you're referencing that I make in the book is we need to think about the discovery meeting and first understand how do we think the decision influencer feels about these issues prior to meeting with us and why do they feel this way? And how do we expect them to feel after we've met with them? Part of the discovery is the transition from this is how they were feeling to this is how I want them to feel. Mm-hmm. And if we haven't identified those two endpoints, you got no chance of going through that transition. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have a, a call, for, uh, excuse me, a plan for the call, and I, you bring up such a great point. I have different words I use for it, but it's, it's the same thing. Is, is You have to go into a call with a plan. It's, yeah, how you want them to feel at the end of yep. the meeting, um, and maybe even what they'll commit to as a result of what you've just gone through in that meeting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Salespeople, when, when, when they look at discovery meetings, they think about the questions they're going to ask and the information they're going to share. Well, there's an infinite number of questions you can ask and only so many that someone's going to tolerate. You probably talk about your company for 16 hours and no one's granting you a 16-hour <laughs> meeting, nor would you want one, right? Right. So how do you figure out which questions to ask and what information to share? And as I describe in the book, you reverse engineer the meeting. And you start by asking yourself this question. It was a great meeting if I accomplished what? 
Identify the outcomes that would make for a great discovery meeting. And if you think of it in terms of a matrix, the left-hand column, here are the desired outcomes. The subsequent columns are, what am I going to ask? Mm -hmm. What am I going to say? What am I going to do before, during, and after the meeting to achieve each one of those desired outcomes? So what questions am I going to ask? Only the ones that correlate with the outcomes on my list. What information am I going to share? The information as it correlates with the outcomes on my list. So now it becomes a very specific project plan. Yeah. And it, what strikes me, and, and yeah, I'm glad you wrote about it because, it's, again, it's such a critical thing, is this forethought, mm -hmm. right? Is It doesn't take 20 minutes to have these thoughts about how do I want my DIs to feel after meeting with them. Um uh, takes... Let me tell you where that first came from. Yeah. I'm going to go back now about 20, 25 years. Um, I'm VP of sales for this company, and I have a team of regional vice presidents and then salespeople that report to them. And we had a presentation at Sara Lee, mm -hmm. and I was asked to come in and deliver the, the corporate story. Right. So I fly to Chicago. And what were you selling again? Employment screening. Background screening, drug testing. Okay. So meet with the RVP and the sales rep at a coffee shop a few hours before the meeting. And I said, now, obviously, we're not getting the deal today. It was a great meeting if we accomplished what? Andy, they looked at me like I had 16 heads. So how <laughs> could you possibly have planned this meeting of what we're going to do there if we don't even know what success looks like? Well, but the thing is, and this is the thing that, I talk about a lot, and I suspect you probably agree with, is that as a sales manager, you should be able to go through a seller's pipeline, and for every opportunity they have there, they should be able to answer that question about the next meeting they want to have with that prospect. Right. I mean, if they don't know what they want to accomplish and how they want them to feel after this meeting, what are they doing? Absolutely. And, and you'd say, boy, it seems like common sense. You've been doing this a long time, so have I. This isn't, it doesn't happen enough to meet the definition of common sense. <laughs> well, but you have to have this plan. I call Correct. it a value plan, right? It's, it's, so what's, what's the value you're going to, the buyer needs you to deliver during this meeting to help them move closer to making a decision? Right. And if they haven't made that transition, as you, the words you use, during that Zoom call or in-person meeting or whatever, it wasn't a good use of their time. Correct. wasn't a good use of your time. But yep. it happens if you don't plan it in advance. You have to, you have to anticipate and understand what they need from you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Seems like it should be simple. About, well, that's why <laughs> you and I are doing what we're doing. <laughs> well, but I, I like the fact you put it in the context of yeah, emotion versus decision and be more specific about asking questions to sort of trigger mm -hmm. the emotions, right? To emotionally, you talk about emotionally evaluate the situation they're in. Yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it. So what are the sort of types of questions that sort of trigger those emotions? Well, let me back up a step. You know, it's interesting. I, I do a lot of consulting work with helping companies put together their discovery programs. And we always get to this, this point where they're struggling. The management team now is struggling with how should we say this or how should we ask this? Mm -hmm. And I'll interrupt them and I'll say, 
just as you're struggling with this, aren't you wondering what's happening in the field right now? Because if you don't have clarity on this, what's going on right. with your salespeople? Right. You know, so so let me come back to your point about the emotions. So let's say we identify that one of the emotions that they're feeling is that they're frustrated with the productivity and performance of their current system because uh, it's causing them to, to miss operational goals. So that's how they're feeling before they meet with us. Well, how do I want them feeling afterwards? Mm-hmm. Right? I want them to feel confident that they found a provider that can help them address their operational needs so that they start hitting their targets. So now I know how they feel beforehand, how they feel afterwards. What am I going to do during the meeting that's going to get them to reach that emotional point? So maybe there's questions I'm asking. Maybe there's information I'm sharing. Maybe there's something I'm showing them. There isn't a, a, a one answer to the question. Oh, yeah, point. Right. So what we have to do, though, when we understand these two endpoints, say, how do we get there? What's the roadmap look like? And not enough salespeople think about that. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a function of, of, yeah, you could say training, but I think it's, it's, maybe it's not skills training as much as sort of a mindset training in terms of people understanding what they really need to try to accomplish during a meeting, during a call with a buyer. See, I, I think it's a step before training. To me, training is something that happens once you've defined what it is and how it's supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. And, and I look at it as a corporate responsibility that the company has to say, okay, this is how you do it. Then there's a conversation about training and not enough layout. This is how you do it. This is the framework. You know, when you've got a company that has had success over the years, you can say, you know, we've learned a few things. Mm-hmm. Why don't we understand our best practices and institutionalize it as process? Get everybody leveraging what we have learned works. Right. And I, I'm not saying you take the personality out of it. I'm not saying you take the style of the salesperson out of it. But let's leverage, let's get everyone taking advantage of those best practices. Yeah. Well, I mean, even though you're a Minnesota guy, well, I know but not by birth, but have been for a long time. Yeah, I've always loved this expression from Vince Lombardi of Green Bay Packer fame, who you know, sort of criticized for running a yeah, so somewhat vanilla offense, even though they were winning all these championships. Yeah. But he talked about, yeah, he gave his players freedom within structure. There you go. And that's what you need to do as a sales manager. As you talk about, it to your point. with the you, structure. You lay right? out the it's framework, freedom, lay out the structure. within structure. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to get into is you talk about two different types of discovery questions. I never heard it phrased this way, and I thought it was an interesting way to think about it, is... You have horizontal questions and vertical questions. So explain yeah. to us what those are. So I'm going to take you to a place where nobody wants to go, the <laughs> dentist chair. <laughs> and and you go there for your routine cleaning. Right. And after you have your cleaning, then you get your exam. And the dentist takes out this big metal hook, right? You're told don't put metal in your mouth unless you're a dentist. And they take this big metal hook and they go tooth by tooth. Right. And as they're doing that, you're sitting there praying that it doesn't stick right <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and then yes. all and you all know where i'm going with this right oh my gosh it sticks well what happens next the dentist does a comprehensive analysis to figure out what's going on with that tooth and ultimately determine what the the right approach is to resolve it 
And so I use that as a metaphor to describe discovery. See, horizontal questions parallel the scanning process. They're scan questions. They're superficial questions to acquire some data point. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what the dentist is doing when he's going tooth by tooth. He's scanning. But then when the hook sticks, that's when the analysis happens. And we don't do that enough. And that's what I refer to as vertical questions. Getting a complete picture, a 360-degree picture of that particular data point. A lot of times I see salespeople ask questions for one reason. You know what that is, Andy? To, to have something to write down. Yeah, just to check a box. Just to write it down. Okay, they've got six of these, and they've been here, and they want this. When we look at the finish line, when deals stall out, it's nothing that was done wrong at the end. It's something that was mm-hmm. done incomplete at the beginning, meaning in discovery. So when all, right when they start saying, well, we need to put this off, and you go, well, wow, I, I thought we were, we were all set here. Because we didn't get a complete picture during discovery. And as a related point, and I also talk about in that chapter, we've been told probe for pain, right? We've got to look for pain points. And anytime we hear a pain point, again, we write it down and we start to salivate because we think now we're getting the deal. There's a filter that we have to apply to any pain point that we uncover. Is this an inconvenience or is it a problem? Right? We all mm-hmm. have complaints about different aspects of our life, but we don't necessarily do anything about it. So uh, we got a puppy during COVID. She's now a year and a half. Right. And we have these wood blinds in the, in the uh, dining room. And she gets very excited when a dog goes by. Well, mm-hmm. one of the sets of blinds, she broke them. I can't fix, has to be replaced. So my wife and I have talked, I can't tell you how many times, yeah, we got to go get new blinds. Yeah, we got to get new blinds. (laughs) You know what? No one's coming to visit right now. So it's an inconvenience. Now, Thanksgiving, if my folks are coming to town, we're not going to have a sheet on the window anymore. We're going to actually have new blinds up because it's now bubbled up to being a problem. Right. And, you know, we, we like to use the word solutions, You have a solution to a problem, not to an inconvenience. And you'll be amazed. That little filter, when you start thinking about that, when you uncover a pain point, you'll start asking those vertical questions to figure out, is there really something here? Are they really ready to invest time, resources, and dollars? Or it's just an inconvenience. It's a nuisance. They Mm -hmm. dealt with it yesterday and they'll deal with it tomorrow. And to take that a step further... A lot of times we talk to middle managers and for them, they look at a situation and they say, it's a problem, but they've got to sell it north on the org chart. Important question we have to ask is, I know you see it as a problem. How do your, how does your executive team see this issue? Mm-hmm. Do they see it as a problem or as an inconvenience? And a lot of times you're going to hear, you know what? That's part of my challenge is they see it as an inconvenience. Right. And if we don't help that individual, provide them with tools to help the executive team see it the same way they do it, you might as well give up because you're not getting that deal. As long as the executive team sees it as an inconvenience, it goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. You know, if you require that, you know, their signature to to move forward. Right. Well, I think what what you phrase or you frame this idea about 
why salespeople don't ask more vertical questions. Basically, I would say, to summarize it, you say that stems from bad parenting. Yes, I do. That's the one time I say you can blame mom and dad. We all come into this world being naturally inquisitive. Why is the sky so blue? Why is this so round? And what do parents do? It just is. Enough questions. Right? right? We've been conditioned to not ask a lot of questions. But how many studies have been done, Andy, that talk about the importance of asking questions, thoughtful, insightful questions as a key component to effective discovery and ultimately winning the deal. Yeah, well, just curiosity in order to connect with another human being. Do you yeah. start that process? Yes. So I, so I do a lot of work with, with salespeople, helping them to reprogram themselves. So we, I take them through some exercises. I say, okay, here's, I'll give you an example of one. I'm going to give you a data point that was uncovered with a horizontal question. Forget about what you're selling. It's just a, a generality. And then I'm going to give you three minutes to come up with as many vertical questions as you can. So here's the data point. I want to go to Florida. That's all you know. How many vertical questions can you come up with? You know, um, have you been to Florida before? How are you going to get there? Right. Do you prefer the ocean or, or a pool? Do you like the East Coast? And I mean, you can see how it's infinite. So I work with them in, in these to get them to start thinking in a different fashion. Mm-hmm. And then we say, okay, now let's take it to your environment. And we'll do the same thing. Right. Give them a data point and then come up with as many vertical questions so that they start getting in the habit of thinking in terms of being insatiable in their quest to understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you really pinpoint something there too, which is this lack of, uh, well, several things. One is, to me, I see the critical gap being is the way so many sellers are trained these days is, is within the framework, the template of these are the questions we typically ask, but right. then the lack of curiosity to ask the follow-up questions or the vertical questions as you talk about. And sellers think that they had a good discovery meeting, so hearkening back to what we talked about at the beginning, because right. I collected this data. I know these things, but they don't understand the context of any of those things relative to the buyer. And so this gap, I call the gap between knowing and understanding, is the reason you get to end the deals and things go sideways or go south. And and sales managers that are listening to this, they're nodding their head. You know why? You know when they see this issue? They see it firsthand. Pipeline meetings. Yeah. Right? Pipeline meetings where they're asking their reps about deals and they go, oh, I don't know. I didn't ask them that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really know. A continuum of that. And they get frustrated, but what do you do differently with your team to get a different result, which is work with them on being insatiable with the questions that look at this horizontal question as merely acquiring a data point. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. We have yeah, a data point. The vertical is just understanding the complete it. picture. Yeah. That's right. But the thing is, there's such easy vertical questions that you can follow up with if you're not even willing to be too creative about it. Yeah, things like, hey, that's very interesting. Tell me more about that. Or, hmm, what else can you tell me about that? I mean, just Uh, Here's here's the challenge that you have with that. Um, I'm a huge baseball fan. Um, Two sons playing college baseball. Yep. And, And if you think about how difficult it is to hit a baseball, if you're standing in the batter's box 
and the guy's throwing 90-something miles an hour. In major leagues, this guy's throwing 100 miles an hour. And you're thinking, where should I have my hands? Where should I have my feet? Should I have my hips turned? Where should my head be? I'd want to be down near third base, personally, if they're throwing that fast at me. But yeah. Right. right? I mean, you might as well go sit down. You've already struck out. Well, it's the same thing in sales. If you have to think about the questions that you're going to ask, you're not prepared for that meeting. And I, and I talk about that in the book. You know, we, we, we use this term very often. We, we call salespeople professional salespeople. And, and I like to ask if they've earned that title, professional salesperson. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at a professional athlete, Right, we, we always hear this contrast of a professional athlete with a salesperson. Very common, right? Right, yeah. And, and there are a lot of commonalities, but there's one difference that is so significant that it almost completely invalidates the comparison. If you think about what an athlete does, professional athlete, they will work hours, days, weeks, months, years perfecting their craft so when they're in competition – Muscle memory takes over and they perform flawlessly, right? Mm-hmm. That's what they do. What do most salespeople do? They play the game over and over again, hoping to be better. And it's in the company's peril. Mm-hmm. It, when, when you make a prospecting call or if you're lucky enough to get a discovery meeting and you're inept, not only does do, do you not get this deal, but now there's a perception of the company and what you're selling. Good luck to the next salesperson trying to get in the door because now they have a negative perception. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, the, God, we could spend a whole other hour on this idea of <laughs> learning and preparation because I, I agree on the, the example you gave is, is, I mean, everybody talks about sales being a process. And yes, there's a process. But really what you're doing is you're preparing for what I call moments that matter. Right. And there's only a certain number of moments that matter. That's in it. a buying journey, a buyer's journey, that you're interacting with them. And if, yeah, if you're not prepared to bring your A game to each one of those moments, then, yeah, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. But that being said, I hate role-playing. I don't believe in it. Yeah, I'm not a big fan either, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of skill practice. I uh-huh. don't think role-playing creates the seriousness or gives the aura of the seriousness of, of what needs to be done. Again, coming back to that professional athlete, right. there are different parts of what you do that you have to practice outside the game if you're going to improve and, and be better. So how do you do skills practice on sales skills? So you pick a segment of the process. If it's prospecting, if it's conducting a discovery meeting, and you create scenarios and you score them and you evaluate them, you record them, and you give the salespeople feedback and help them to be better for the next time. And we like to say, boy, it's not the same. You know, it's much harder when you're doing this in front of peers or, uh, you know, or, or your manager's in the room. I don't buy that. If you can't do it in the four walls of your office, you can't do it, period. It's much harder when you're standing in the office of a prospect. You're standing there with someone with a, a C-level title or a VP title. You're going to tell me, that that's easier than doing it in front of your peers. If you can't do it in front of your peers, you can't do it. Well, so but you, so you're saying you don't like role play, but you're saying skills practice. So you're still practicing practice. with somebody who's it's, who's appearing to be a, a prospect. Correct. Correct. I just don't think role playing gives it enough serious uh, okay. serious uh, enough impression. And I'm not saying salespeople are going to love it. 
just because it's a different expression. But love me on payday. Love me when you make President's Club. Just like mom and dad made you eat your vegetables. That's what sales management needs to do with their, their salespeople and make sure skill practice is happening religiously. I agree. Every week, there should be something, for sure. All right, Lee, we've run out of time, but thank you very much for joining me. So if people want to learn more about the book and connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, if you go to selldifferentbook.com, you can learn more about the book and you can download the first chapter for free. Perfect. To get a flavor. And connect with you on LinkedIn, I presume? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Lee, well, thank you so much. Andy, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Lee Sauls, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.